Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The music stopped 2008 when the growth stopped. Yeah. So therefore, we haven't really thought about this stuff for decades. Yeah. And we better do quick because so, the clock's so, ticking. Yeah, you know. What are we for? That's the, right, that, absolutely. What, what? what are we for? since we've been active on the subject of black involvement in labour politics If anyone says that politics can't make a difference, then look at what we have achieved together. People feel that change is coming. Ed Miliband has a dream. He wants to revive Labour as a mass membership party. I want to use your talents, whoever you supported. Ed Miliband has stepped down as Labour Party leader. The announcement comes after a devastating night for the party. Jeremy Corbyn, 251. Come with us on that journey. The Labour Party is too broad a church at the moment. You'll be inspired. There are people who disagree with me for reasons that they say are to do, say, with Iraq. You'll be occupied. But actually are to do with the fact that I won three elections to the Labour Party and they didn't like it. But above all, you'll be part of it. Hello and welcome to A Beginner's Guide to the Labour Party. My name is Holly Rigby. I'm a secondary school English teacher in Elephant and Castle and I joined the Labour Party last year having never been in a political party before. I'm a beginner at all this and if you are too, keep listening. To help me understand how the Labour Party works, each month I'll be putting my questions to a panel of experts and challenging them to break down the jargon. In this episode, the big question I'm asking is, what position should Labour take on immigration? I'm joined by my regular guest, the academic and commentator, Jeremy Gilbert. Hello, Jeremy. Hi. And for this episode, we're also joined by two very special guests, former Labour leader of Lambeth Council, Linda Bellos. Hello. And MP for Dagenham and Raynham, John Crudus. Hi there. So, um, since the EU referendum, questions about the future of immigration and freedom of movement have dominated the political agenda. But even before this, immigration had regularly come top of people's concerns in national polling. As a new member, I want to understand Labour's historic position on immigration to see where the current debate we're having fits in. 
It's a big topic. So we're going to try to understand what Labour is saying on immigration right now, how that fits in with what they said in the past. And if we have time, go through the reasons that might be behind some of the public's concerns about immigration, whether that be culture, the economy, race or anything else that our commentators um, want to speak about. And we're going to try and round off by looking to the future and asking, so what should Labour's position on all of this be? Now, um, what is the debate in the Labour Party right now on immigration? That's the first thing um, we're going to talk about. Um, So... Jeremy, can you start us off? What do you think is um, the debate in the Labour Party right now? Well, I would say the debate, to understand the debate, we have to start from the understanding that for quite a long time, the Labour was committed pretty much to an open borders policy. But it was committed to an open borders policy largely in line with its commitment to broader free market neoliberal economics, to the project of the European Union uh, as an almost purely neoliberal institution, etc. And it, it justified that in terms of a of a quite genuine, I think, belief in the value of a certain kind of cosmopolitan culture, to the value of multiculturalism. Um, but I think there was always uh, there was always a sort of problematic situation in the left of the party, which was motivate was also tended to be sympathetic to open borders, cosmopolitanism, etc. But for quite different, actually very different, sort of ethical and political and social reasons in many ways. So we went along with this without really ever making a very clear popular case or a critical case for a more radical form of cosmopolitanism or a more radical form of anti-immigration policy. I mean, in the past two decades, I mean, partly because the left that was capable of making that argument and did make it in the 80s was defeated and was completely marginalised within the party to some extent. So um, and that's n- your perspective of the debate. Well, There's there, yeah. there another side to it. Well, I'm saying, and, so, and, now, and really now, you know, apart from that, after that, there's a widespread perception, I mean, across the party and across the wider sort of political, uh, really, you know, the political class that um, the, the, the settled, as Theresa May put it, the settled will of the British people is there must be, you know, an end to freedom of movement. There must be an end to immigration control. And, and people are trying to um, find some way of sort of... Um, you know, deal, respond to that in some way, which is not is not Im- implicitly xenophobic and racist, which might be completely impossible, and also trying to square the fact that significant sections of Labour's kind of existing and traditional sort of political coalition are still very committed for their different reasons to kind of to you know anti-xenophobic, anti-racist, open borders policies. Whereas, on the other hand, the constituency who everybody is most terrified of Labour completely losing because the social and political consequences seem to be some sort of, you know, turned by that constituency to fascism, as in France. In other words, the the so-called post-industrial working class seem to be completely, resolutely immovable on the issue. I don't think that's necessarily true, but that is the perception, the widespread perception, is that they are so immovable on that issue that some form of accommodation. And I'd say within the Parliamentary Labour Party, as far as I can see, the positions being taken by various Labour MPs are almost entirely dependent upon their personal assessment of the politics of their particular constituency. Okay, and so um, we have an MP here. So John, would you kind of roughly agree that that's the debate um, on immigration as it stands at the moment between those two Well, there was so much in what Jeremy just said that I agree with, and there's so much in what he just said. Um, I think the point is it's 
it's so intertwined with the deeper grievances around globalisation and its effect within working class communities that what you see at the moment in Labour is an inability to disentangle these elements. Mm. So it then becomes played out in a sort of left-right thing where you have sort of Diane on one hand and then you have the traditional Labour right on the other with a sort of more nativist noises that occasionally come out. So what do they stand for? If, well, if we say Diane Abbott stands for well, what, she, open borders? She would be and... seen as the, the, the cosmopolitan free movement universal citizenship model that that liberationist politics interlinked with that. What, then, what do you mean by liberationist well, politics? Well, it would be sort of born out of uh, some of the, uh, the uh, anti... Uh, sort of some of the liberationist politics through the 80s, which was anti-imperialist in orientation, which still informs a lot of the left politics in and around Labour. Um, so there's a whole series of things churning together here. And then, it's, then on the Labour right, you have this preoccupation simply with polling in terms of where they think <laughs> the people are. But it's, it's a much deeper story about people's sense of uh, inability to control the forces that are shaping their lives that we need to get into rather than simply see it as a pollster's thing about where people put notional grievances around immigration because there are much deeper issues at play here. So we are going to get a chance to talk about the deeper issues that right. perhaps it's not just just about immigration, it might be about, um, you know, class, race, all these other things. But we're just trying to sort of define where the Labour Party is currently. Um, Linda, would you agree that those are the two sides of the Labour Party debate? Um, the kind of ones who want to respond to their constituencies with their grievances, and on the other hand, this cosmopolitan, kind of anti-imperialist, open borders left. Would you agree that's the debate? Ish. Yeah. But I, I think we have to recognise that a lot of the people who voted out... Mm were black. The, 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 there's a black working class. When people talk about the working class, they mean the white working class. I don't know what they think the workers who happen to come from the Caribbean or from Bangladesh were doing. Well, it isn't swanning about in, 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 you know, fancy places. They were getting their hands dirty. They are still getting their hands dirty as workers. Mm. And some of them, unfortunately didn't have and don't have a political analysis. Why? Because the Labour Party, for one, amongst others, isn't addressing them. Um, so I think it would be I think it would be useful for listeners to know a little bit about um, not just what the kind of general debates are about immigration. You know, is it um, is it to do with workers' rights? Is it to do with race and those things? But also what Labour's historic position has been um, on some of these issues. Um, so can I say mixed? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, definitely. Um, so if we maybe do it um, chronologically, so... Um Obviously, in the 1950s and the 1960s, that was the, the, the time of Windrush, the time of, um, you know, mass migration. 48 was the Windrush. So let's start there then. So if 1948 was this kind of big influx of people um, from, like you said... It was a noticeable influx. It wasn't a big influx. But the, but the, 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 the What Britain needed was more... I will, I will use their language, manpower. They wanted yeah. more people because of the damage done, because of the, where, the, where industry was. Britain needed to rebuild, and one of the places it could, do, it could use mm. was its empire, mm. and, and, and people what, came. And so what was, um, if you know, like what was Labour's um, position on that at the time? Were they kind of the champion for um, this, this migration well, it, of it, people? It, it, yes, and, and, the, and the subsequent Conservatives were as well there was from you know mm. from from 48 people started coming in thinking about Windrush came in in, in 48 there, there were lots of 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 
movements as well as in, in, in Africa and in the Caribbean for, for liberation. Mm. Her people had sacrificed. They didn't want to go back to second-class status even in their own country. And the, if the mother country, if they, they could get, get some decent wages, mm. and that's why many people came, they came, they contributed, they thought they would go home after, you know, maybe 10 years. Instead, they had children here and they're here and... Mm. I, and I'm here. Yeah. So would well, you so agree? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean, the west of Ireland was yes. also a breeding ground for, for you know, uh, huge swathes of migration mm. given the, the demands for labour of yeah. modern British capitalism. And that was the driver. Yeah. And actually there was a degree of political census, but there was extremism at the margins. Obviously, the rivers of blood streets. Mm. And actually that played yeah, so into the some of, of the tensions within the labour movement. Where you had, non, you had, for non-history buffs, the rivers of blood speech is referring to... Well, Enoch Powell, Powell. the famous speech. Um, 1964. It was 68. Sort of dreaming up the consequences of, you know, blood in the rivers, literally, because of the calamitous consequences of all of this. And actually, that does feed into some of the tensions in and around the Labour movement where you had dock workers marching yeah. in defence of Enoch Powell. So mm. this was, you know, this was always a sort of turbulent space. Mm. But one thing was the scale of the migration. The, I mean, obviously, within the context of globalisation and the shrinking planet, the scale of the movement in and out of countries is very different, a very different character to it. And I think, actually, the scale of the political response has been very different with the dawning of this economic liberalism, which meant that... For example, some of the frustrations in communities like mine within the Labour area, the more recent new Labour era, was because we weren't doing enough. There's extraordinary, unprecedented movements of people in and out of the country. We weren't doing enough to support those communities disproportionately taking the strain, which were the poorer communities because of the search for cheap housing, which is what my family searched for. I'm sure Linda's mm. family searched for. Migrant mm. communities come in in search of huge sort of lower cost housing, which puts pressures on in terms of the consumption of public services in those communities. That's some of the issues that lie behind some of the politics of migration that are being, we are unable to handle within the Labour Party at the moment, partly because we're unable to handle our embrace of some of the economic systems that were benefiting from it. In effect, we in Labour were using migration as a modern incomes policy um, over the last couple of decades when um, to, to bank the economic benefits without supporting the communities that were helping deliver those economic outcomes. And Jeremy, would you roughly agree with that history that um, because there wasn't this big mass migration in the 50s and 60s, it was more welcomed and there was consensus across the board from the Conservatives and the Labour Party, but actually it's this recent phenomenon of mass migration that is the thing that's created this debate? Um, and when, what kind of time period are we talking about for this new mass migration and, and how did that start to change Labour's narrative, if you can answer that? Well, I mean, there's two things I'll say. I mean, one is that Really, the, the the period when there's relatively little tension, there, there's never no tension. Mm. I mean, there is tension caused. I mean, as soon as really, I think as soon as it becomes clear, especially to young people, the children of immigrants, that they are going to be staying in this country and that the country doesn't really know how to treat them, there, there do start to be some tensions between some communities in places like Notting Hill that have come from quite early on. But broadly speaking, there's relatively little tension, partly because there is quite a long tradition of sort of English tolerance and compared to sort of countries like the United States, but partly, but mostly for the economic reasons. So as long as as long as there's a, 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 an ongoing demand for labour, as long as wages are rising, as long as you've got full employment, there isn't any real economic reason for them. As soon as unemployment starts to rise again in the late sixties, there's an immediate, really a, an absolutely immediate response from the right 
to try to construct a narrative according to which rising unemployment must be blamed on immigration, which is which is always fatuous nonsense in, in factual terms. I mean, immigration to the UK from the former empire was already in decline by the mid-60s. And yet, and it, so Enoch Powell... You know, famously mobilises this attempt to, you know, to to to, to really an attempt to, to mobilise a kind of popular racism. You know, in in the, the long Midlands tradition, actually, it was people like Joseph Chamberlain, it's worth saying. Um, and from that moment, th- and I think that does mark a new phase. And I think you know, it's very important to take note of the fact that from that moment of the at the beginning of the seventies, which is also the moment when, for example, Rupert Murdoch turns the turns the Sun from a Labour paper to a Tory paper, okay. there is an absolutely concerted attempt by the popular press to mobilise this narrative, which says mm. the reason, almost all, the cause of almost all the suffering of working class people. On any front is immigration, mm. you know, and uh, of some, uh, of some form or another. And this and this 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 didn't let up. I mean, I, I was kind of examining PhDs about anti-asylum seeker discourse, anti-refugee discourse at the height of the the, the new Labour economic boom in the early two yeah. thousands. It, it, yeah. it has it's never let yeah. up. They've been doing it for forty years absolutely mm. consistently. Yeah. And why do you think that it hasn't? So if we're going from that that, that period of time that you talked about um, of the kind of the Sun newspaper um, turning to this Tory newspaper, bringing that forward a little bit. So then we've now got New Labour um, and Ed Miliband's control on immigration mug. So clearly this narrative has stuck from the time period that you're talking about up till now. Why has it stuck? You know, if if we had such a different idea about migration before, why has that narrative stuck so much? It, it, Linda, do you want to? Is it? I don't know. It's ideological. I think it's economic. It's it's in response to the economic circumstances, and the, I I think these things are about wealth and power, the ruling class. I'm going to use that expression because there clearly is one, and there has been one. They set an agenda for what is in their interest. They want free markets. They want free markets. They want wages as low as possible so that profits can be as high as possible. We don't have any newspapers, national newspapers, that are critical. Uh, I, I mean, I don't mean that they should be, you know, 100% Marxist or anything, but but at least have some understanding and, it, and desire to explain what is happening in the world rather than, and I, you know, read the some of the newspapers, I mean, they're absolutely shocking in terms of what is being told to our communities. People aren't, you know, what don't know what's going on and will take up some of this rubbish. So how do you feel about um, how the sort of new Labour project particularly has responded to that media response? Because you could say, well, the media's doing this, but Labour should still stand for its values. I think but it we've should, got but the it So yeah. do you think it hasn't Correct. done in the last sort of... But there's a danger of saying new Labour did this. Yeah. I mean, there were there were cross-currents within new Labour from 97. Mm. Let me give you an example. Mm. They set up a commission on the future of multi-ethnic Multicultural Britain, I think it was called, with Bikku Parrot, with Stuart Hall was involved, some fantastic academics Mm. and thinkers, and it was a very bold thing to do. But then they sort of bottled out of, of the mm, consequences. And that was a sort of key turning moment, partly because when it was coming out, there were riots in Bradford, mm. you were seeing. So there was quite a tense period in the early 2000s, I guess. Mm. And yes. that seems to me to be the moment when new Labour, as it were, boldly set it up, but then withdrew from the consequences. That marked a turning what point. What were the consequences that came out of that report? What did what well, could have been taken? Spending some money, Spending some money, mainly. Spending some money as well. So there was, a, there was, a, there was a, an economics to it. But there's also a much more aggressive confrontation with some of these press 
demonization that was occurring as well. And there was a moment when you felt it could be possible to really push back against it. The point I'm taking to make is it wasn't new Labour versus something else. There were cross currents within the new Labour period that are worth exploring because they tease out some of the tensions here. So it's not new Labour bad. It's why did it not go as far as it could have done? And where were the possibilities lost or the roads not taken, really? So we've started, I think, now to touch upon um, what might be below the surface of this um, immigration debate, um, because um, we know that or commentators have said that the Brexit vote was a vote on immigration. Um, We know that immigration comes um, at the top of people's um, national concerns in polling. Is this just about um, people being kind of anti-immigration or what are the layers to it we're talking about? Linda, you've touched upon it's about workers and the economy for both black and white workers. Um, John, would you agree with that assessment? Well, let me give you an example. MP for Dagenham, we had 13 BNP councillors on the authority till 2010. What lies beneath? It was the fastest changing community in Britain from about the early 2000s. But there was a sense that amongst many people, black and white, that this was occurring in a zero-sum game Mm. in terms of access to public services, housing especially. Mm. So we were disproportionately taking the blame. Other groups could come in and scavenge across that seam of grievance and racialise it, whereas actually the grievances were much deeper in terms of a failure to deliver material and wider benefits in terms of the community, all parts of the community. So it was a positive sum environment. There was a notion of a common shared endeavour, but there wasn't because it was occurring as the walls were coming in and the ceiling was coming down in terms of investment in the community, as well as uh, deindustrialisation of part of the community as well. So you have this environment where almost the global, what we euphemistically call globalisation, was occurring in this microclimate, um, and people are going to have something to say about it. And and the danger is these more pernicious, big lies occur that that sort of make sense of it, that sort of demonise the other. Yeah, blame blame all these new incomers. Uh, Absolutely. So there's always an insider-outsider thing here, right? Whether they were Irish from back in the the day, Jewish from the early 20th century, we've seen waves of people for a variety of reasons come to this country and be wanted in this country for the labour and very little done to... to provide a context in which it's safe right. for them to now, do two, it. Two points, going back to it. Mm. A, they were resisted and beaten back, which goes back to what Jeremy was saying, that, that let's not write off people's resistance to these sort of forces. And B, that the actual forces themselves didn't fall out of the sky culturally. They were materially grounded in the inability of new labour by the end to shape and help those communities that were disproportionately taking the strain in terms of patterns of migration and, uh, you know, literally the world shrinking and people moving into and within the city in search of cheap housing, which is ever the case. I was going to say, and what did Labour do? Endorsed right to buy, and I'm talking about, you know, endorsed right to buy, and didn't build the homes that they should. Mm. And these, anybody, you don't have to be a bleeding genius to realise that there are going to be consequences Mm. in our communities. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But, I mean, you, there seems to be some uh, kind of agreement about the economics um, behind it. But is there, a, is there a cultural element to it as well? You know, in the, in the um, community that you're from, how much of it is that people, you know, want to maintain a sense of, you know, kind of Englishness and, you know, cultural identity? See, I, I have this notion, a, right? Yeah. I have this idea that, uh, give, give example, a lot of it was primarily West African migration, large families moving out from the inner London. This like is a where, similar way to large families moved out through some clearance earlier or yeah. large Irish families moved out before and actually there's more in common in terms of the the what people are searching for than divides them in terms of their physiological characteristics now there is a hope within that if you go to that shared common life that people share and want for their families if we could get there rather than simply play into this balkanized landscape of groups against groups which the right are good the press has a responsibility to but also labor as a radical tradition, has a responsibility to push against and contest, which we haven't done enough. That's why I go back to that early 2000s moment where there was almost this fork in the road with this commission's report about whether we were going to take this downtown or whether we were going to resist it. And we ended up resisting it or not doing what we could have done. And yeah. that is a real not missed opportunity. And it could, they could have been radical. <laughs> and if they'd explained, if they'd explained, it's not, you can't just do it. You can't just have a, 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 a vote in, in, in the Commons and suddenly not explain to the communities who are affected. And they're not just white communities. There are all kinds of working class people in communities who nothing is explained it's, it's, it's dumped on people and then we leave them to, to make of it what they will. So you're kind of talking about the fact that, um, as you mentioned earlier, that it's not just kind of white working class prejudice. Actually, you get you'll, Caribbean you'll, prejudice, absolutely. African prejudice, it, all of those and things it becomes, tied up look, together. People, um, look, we were told to assimilate. Well, I'm sorry, mate, but we have. <laughs> and co- consequently, some of that stuff that in in, in our class communities up, yeah. is shared. I heard, mm. I heard. Uh, maybe they've cut it out, but after the Brexit vote, I'm hearing Caribbean, African, Asian. Uh, very interesting. That, me- is that you know, this debate? saying yeah, right. some of the same, and I can't, shouldn't use my, you know, crude language, but some of the same rubbish mm. that we heard the stereotype image of the white working class. And it seems to me that white working class people are being pilloried as though they're racist. This is learnt behaviour and responses to class discrimination. Mm, mm. That's because that's what's going mm. on. Who, has, who are being hit the hardest? 
Yeah. Working class people, black and white. So I'm using black in, a, in, a, in a, an inclusive way. I don't mean just African or African Caribbean, Asian. Lots of the working class, working people of this country have been adversely impacted. I think is the yeah. is the language. Jeremy, would you kind of agree with the, that analysis? Yeah, completely. I mean, both anecdotally, but also having looked at some of you know some of the statistics that are available, it's quite clear there was a very big. There's a very big sort of multicultural, multi-ethnic working class community which is bought into a narrative which is xenophobic. It's quite xenophobic. Blame the, po- blame yeah, the polls. Exactly, exactly. And it's anti-immigration, mm. uh, but it's not really, it's not kind of racist in any kind of classical sense. Um, so it sounds like there's kind of many um, different issues here, but the, at the fundamental, there seems to be some kind of consensus that this is a a class issue, um, although that's definitely not the way that it's being communicated at the moment right. at all, is it? Right. So, um, and it never is. Well, yeah, and so I, I we're suppose... We're not supposed to use the word class. I suppose... Uh, we're, 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 well, there's a deep, there is a deeper question going on here, actually, in terms of the contemporary discussions in and around Labour, because there is a sort of language that says, well, this tension between the working class and the sort of... Uh, the Liberals offers diminishing returns because of automation and uh, that they're going to go away anyway, these working class folk. So let's go all in with this new political constituency of the young, urban, networked youth, which I found very threatening <laughs> in terms of... The, personally? No, personally, the, the, yeah, because I have a bit of skin in the game. But yeah. there's, there's also the question of, I worry for the country because one of the great historical... But I was talking to Jeremy about this the other week. One of the great historic legacies of the Labour Party in this country is to have a political organisation anchored within the working class that chokes off fascism within this country. Mm-hmm. And if we repudiate that historic role, then I fear what Aaron Banks will do, what happens post-Brexit, the Trump elements, where this goes. You know, if the Labour Party fundamentally withdraws from its historic role, based on that class politics, then I, I worry yeah. where the shakedown well, occurs. But, but where do we um, kind of draw the line between listening to um, real working class frustrations and then where does it move into what we're talking about, fa- fascists, no, basically? Because well, that's, that's it's what It's not I... about listening to. It's actually about, isn't it about finding solutions with? Mm. It's not just about listening to and, 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 and somehow if we, if we hear those things and we pat them on the head, mm. that, that somehow... What are the solutions? It's really we've got to deal with this. is This is reality, and I think that that's I think that's important. I think it's interesting bringing in that context of America, isn't it? And I, I think because obviously it's a similar debate, and people are worried about you know is Trump a fascist? Is the Brexit vote fascism? Um, and that actually, like you said, it's not just about listening to um, working class people, but finding solutions, solutions with with them, not for. But there is still obviously this element that people are very afraid of. of real racism like old-fashioned fascist racism like how much of that is playing an element in this debate well there is there is parts of it i mean i'm not romantic enough to disinvent that element within all classes actually not just the working class thing and i see it we've always had a history of far-right organization in dagenham Mm. we always will i guess you know but let's try and residualize that Mm. by creating a sort of firewall between Mm. that and a wider discussion that is actually more hopeful and built around a shared humanity that mm. we build. That was always my sense of what Labour was. That was a platform that we sort of built that sort of politics around. Now, arguably, the current debate in and around Labour about free movement doesn't even get anywhere near where we need to go. And it's symptomatic, actually, of, of the 
the shrinking of Labour intellectually mm. yes. and uh, in terms of its radicalism. That's what we need to rebuild. That's not necessarily a left-right thing within Labour, by the way. Um, but so that's, that's what needs to be forged again. Mm. Um, and that's starting to sound like um, what I want to talk about next, which is um, what should Labour's position be? What do we need to do to be able to argue that position and to ultimately win people around to our ideas? Um, because if we're bringing it right back up to the present, um, thinking about um, Jeremy's election, obviously he used his um, inauguration speech, the, you know, the first time that he was um, elected, um, to support the Refugees Are Welcome Here demonstration. And there was a sense that he comes from that tradition, that kind of anti-imperialist tradition, and um, and that that could be the direction that Labour is taking. That hasn't been consistent by any means across the Labour Party, because um, just to summarise some of the ideas, as far as I'm seeing them on a kind of broad reading of newspapers, you know, we've got Clive Lewis perhaps preparing the ground for an about turn um, on freedom of movement, thinking that all foreign workers should be joining the union. We've got Diane Abbott saying that um, we're not going to win an election as UKIP light and we should set no immigration quota. Uh, we've got um, Stephen Kinnock um, saying it's the end of multiculturalism, we need to move towards assimilation. So there's a lot of noise at the moment and it's quite hard as um, even a Labour Party member to know what our position is. So if it's hard for me to know, I would imagine that it's pretty hard for most of the country to know. So this, I would just be interested to hear what you think our positions should be on some of these key issues. Well, I'm, I'm going to come back to what I said earlier about economic solutions because the things you were describing, they're the symptoms of an economic system that is not working. It's not working in the world. It's not just not working in Britain. Uh, being in Europe has its benefits, but we're not now in Europe. So that's what a, an, another court. But we're still part of the world. We want to trade. We, we're hearing everyone say, in what kind of environment do we want to do it? And surely we've got to do it in some kind of building and some ethical environment internationally. So that sounds like quite a, um, a grand narrative in some senses, doesn't it? That we need to tell a different story about yes. our place in the world. Um, it, what stories do we need to be telling? Um, never mind policies, but what's the story that we need to be telling that is different from the you blame your next door neighbour who moved in 10 years ago when you've only been here for 50 years or whatever? What's, what story should we be telling to people, um, Jeremy? Well, yeah, I think we should be telling a very clear story, but it has, but it's a story which has to say that, broadly speaking, the general trajectory of government policy since the end of the 1970s has been disastrous. And it's a story that begins, really, with the capitulation to the IMF in the late 70s. Yes. And it includes... You know, it includes the Thatcher period, it includes most of, you know, most of the New Labour period, and it includes the current. And I think... Um, and I think it is really disappointing that the current leadership have shied away from that and have tried to frame the story in terms of um, the problem being austerity. This is something you know, everybody in this room has heard me say before, except for Linda, but you'll hear me say it again, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a total mistake. Austerity is the name for a kind of programme of, of you know, government uh, public spending contraction since 2010, and the main victims of it are people who are having a basically okay time before that, for the most part, apart from welfare claimants. The main victims are people, public sector workers, students, young people, so metropolitan left. It doesn't speak to the people who've been suffering continuously mm, since the 1980s. Exactly. And we need to tell that story. And mm. it's just extraordinary to me that the leadership are not, have not really made any attempt actually to frame that. But I would say more fundamentally, I'd also say I'm not sure on, on the particular issue 
that we're talking about, my feeling is that the success and the kind of determination of that project by the popular press, you know, to to mobilise a very specific campaign of misinformation has been so intensive that I don't think, I doubt that can be effectively challenged even by a a charismatic leadership telling the story I want them to tell and identifying the enemy. I think it would indeed, as Linda has kind of indicated, and I think the kind of work, in fact, the kind of work John was engaged in against the BNP at one time, uh, uh, sort of indicated it really involves a kind of a process a kind of community level mobilization mm, forms a sort of deliberative democracy in some sense i think we have to we we, we have to have a i think we have to have a policy that starts explicitly from saying there has indeed look there's been a 40 year campaign of misinformation like no one in the mm. hardly anyone in the country is making decisions about this based on what actually happens i mean there's the there's, there's <laughs> statistics there was a report done by YouGov or somebody about 4 years ago i'm constantly referring to where they asked people what proportion how much immigration do you think there really is in the country like what proportion of the budget do you think goes on welfare etc and a people are totally wrong about all those things and b the vast majority of them as soon as they find out what the facts are it, it, it's shocking and they start changing their opinions so we've got so, a very so, so, I, so that kind of sounds like uh, slightly contradictory because it says that um, on the one hand when people find out the facts then they change their minds so all we need you could say is like a charismatic leadership team who communicates the, the real story as opposed to but misinformation. But you still be offering something. But then on the other hand, you're kind of talking about a story which, I'll be honest, I, I haven't heard, um, but I admittedly make up this kind of urban, you know, like young professional um, group that you're talking about and not and not the kind of um, other groups you're speaking of. Um, but you're saying that for those groups, um, like, for example, I went to... Um, st- Camazine and Stroud in Kent um, this weekend, completely different constituency to the one that um, I come from. And, you know, the first guy that I met who worked on the market stall, the first thing he said was, you know, my, my parents um, worked in industry in this area, but by the time that I was coming to get a job, those industries were gone and I now work in this market. Um, and, you know, that was tied up with... with Prejudice, I'll be like you know, it was tied up with the ideas that people could, that, that come to the surface. But for for the, for the men like the men in that market, that sort of traditional white working class man that has kind of been this yeah. big figure in in the recent debates gets used those, again and again, right? You know? Um, you know, are we is that are we telling those that, those groups that story about the IMF about the seventies, about the eighties that life see, has been bad see, since I, then? I like, actually think, um, and this is where I sort of disagree with some of my colleagues. I think people are being played for mugs a bit in this, actually. Those self-same people, that are, that's a rolling conversation I have all the time mm. in my constituency, right? And their understanding of what lies beneath this is much deeper than we assume when we say, oh, they're racist or they're mm. preoccupied mm. with immigration. That is the form that crystallises deeper resentments and frustrations mm. about the about actually them not being able to live the lives they were promised, mm. actually. And that's what gets to the the core of this yeah. and the frustrations and actually the humiliations that go with that, which are powerful forces absolutely. that can be captured by... There's no um, security for uh, white working security class. Absolutely, security is one, one part of, that's of it, but there, there is a deeper sense of an inability to secure for your children yeah. and your family what you think. And that, that's not just a male thing. No. That is a, that is a deeper sense of which I am very, very... Um, I can, uh, I mean, understanding I can, of. Yeah. And, and now that, that presents itself... Mm. as racism or preoccupied with immigration. But it is actually the way that that the deeper forces are articulated in terms of people's sense of... um, And it's captured by the notion of the elites, and that's why Trump and Brexit can capture it. The left has to be in that space. It has to choke off where that might go 
And that can't be done simply if we if we if we see it simply as racist. Yeah. We I have can, to go uh, yeah. beneath in I terms th- of the deeper stories, which Jeremy was actually saying. And actually, the austerity thing is part of that actually as well, because that's a simplistic worldview rather than the deeper question of what's going on here. I think so, that we we need to focus on what we're for and not just what we're against. And I think that, that, that people, what you're describing, John, is happening in lots of communities. It's not just white working class men. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are being picked on, as it were, mm-hmm. as though they are in some way kind of responsible. Oh, totally. For, uh, and, fa- and it's not we, true. The left no, has had nothing to say yeah, after absolutely. the failure of the post-war social democratic experiment. Basically, that collapsed. That Thatcher raging overtook it. Schroeder, Blair, Clinton yeah. tried to modify it. The music stopped 2008 when the growth stopped. Yeah. So therefore, we haven't really thought about this stuff for decades. Yeah. And we better do quick because so, the clock's so ticking. Yeah, no, you know. What are we for? That's the, right, that, absolutely. What, what, what are we for? What are we for? What's the Labour Party for? What, what, are, what are socialists around the world exactly. for? What kind of world do we want to create? And these are really important questions to which... I don't think that that we in this room or some representative sample of, you know, whatever, <laughs> right, we, I think we have to write that collectively. I think it has to involve the people that we're now talking about. I completely agree. And I think that um, that was um, my experience definitely going to um, Stroud because I'd never even tried to enter into that conversation with people who had very, very different opinions to me. And whilst it did have that level of prejudice, actually, my, my question was exactly that. So I said to this guy in the market, um, OK, you know, a government comes in tomorrow. What one thing would you like to see change and he was like I want to open um, the Kent Medsway newspaper and I want to see hundreds of jobs advertised in that newspaper and for, right. and I was like if you had that conversation right. over and over again and you got all the Labour activists who are mainly concentrated in London who are very much in a bubble and I realised that that weekend you know in Stroud when we spent the day there if you there needs to be a movement out of London as well right that the, the ideas are currently being dominated in London and that these conversations need Norfolk, to happen I live in Norfolk by the way yeah I'm sorry I'm, sorry I'm, I'm, I'm moved out <laughs> well, Parts of London where this is quite a live conversation. Yeah, sorry, sorry, but that kind of this kind of urban, like you know, London that we're that we're we're talking about. Um, So yeah, and I think that so is that is that what we need to be doing? Is this a process of listening? and finding solutions, but how do you take it from the listening to the solutions? Because that man can say that to me, but until I can say, well, the Labour Party says they're going to do this, then actually that's just a sort of one-way conversation, isn't it? It's not a get-out clause. But to say, I mean, for us as a Labour Party, um, running straight to the immigration free movement question swerves around the big stuff. And unless you go to the big stuff now in terms of why do we have this crisis of centre-left thinking across Western market economies, why are the rights so powerful? Um, What were the, in a much more nuanced form, the pros and cons of the last Labour government, right? Um, What lies beneath some of these uh, visceral feelings that are being expressed, we will, we will waste this opportunity that doesn't come around too often in opposition to really rethink, literally, as Lena said, what is the purpose mm. of the left nowadays, mm. right? That's mm. the question, mm. of which the immigration thing is second order. Absolutely. That, that is... And if I forced you to answer that question um, in, for your constituency, right. what is the purpose, what should we be doing... Would you be able to give an answer to that? Well, I think I would. I mean, in terms of the, the role of the left always for me was to ensure that all people had the opportunity to live full, fulfilling, rewarding lives. And that's what people feel is not being provided mm. now for a whole series of reasons. Then you can go into, you know, specific programmatic ways of achieving that. Um, questions of democracy and agency, which Jeremy was talking about, which is central to all of this, actually changing this political conversation. 
But you have to be optimistic about our collective ability to work through this or else then you do get to a pretty dark place in terms of the future of the country. Yes, I think um, we have talked about um, the many, many different elements of this debate. And I don't think, um, for me, certainly, the conversation is finished, although it has been um, absolutely fascinating hearing about some of the history of this debate that I I had no idea about personally. Um, And my experience of going to Stroud means that I know that there is a lot of work to be done. And even the things that you talked about are very, they're grand narratives, they're grand policies. And I think that... As a Labour Party, we are going to have to come together and start asking some proper questions and then providing some answers and finding some of the solutions that you talked about um, once we have diagnosed those. I personally, after this conversation, feel quite hopeful, actually. I feel like there is, you know, the the conversation's starting to happen, which is exciting. Um, So I just wanted to give you maybe 30 seconds only for one last final thought. I want to see some of the things I've been saying being international, not just Britain, not, not just in the UK. I think, and I think there's an appeal to lots of people in the world. Lots of people want to stay with their families in Africa, in, in, in Asia, etc. They don't want to be getting on boats and killing themselves to get here. They would rather be in the sun, etc. So that means this country and the West has got to stop exploiting those resources, etc. There's huge, I think, there's huge amounts of opportunity. Uh, we need we need to develop a politics which offers uh, communities a sense of control over their lives and over the, the composition of their communities. And I think one one of the reasons we've been hampered in developing any kind of radical policy around things like immigration, benefits, housing, is because, indeed, metropolitan liberals have been terrified of the idea that if you actually give working class people any say over things, they'll just they'll be fascists. Mm. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I'd say don't write off working yeah. class yeah. people within this conversation because yeah. historically they have had to deal with more than many others would imagine Mm. in terms of economic and Mm. social change. And uh, I'm very optimistic about the human condition, Mm. especially from the Mm. class I come Mm. from. Mm. And if we can do our historic role, which is forge a politics around that, which is optimistic, outward looking, but is focusing in on, you know, making sure that we confront the forces that are shrinking people's opportunities in life. Now, that should not be beyond our collective wit if we use this period (laughs) coming over the next couple of years positively. And it won't be. There's no on-off switch either, by the way. This is because this is so embedded. This is a long grind Mm. to build a politics out. Yeah. Okay, so let the grind begin. Um, Thank you very much, uh, John, Linda and Jeremy for a fascinating discussion. Um, Jeremy and I will be back next month. In the meantime, you can subscribe for free on iTunes or the podcast app of your choice. Just search for A Beginner's Guide to the Labour Party. You'll get our next episode on your phone as soon as it's out. Or you can listen back to previous episodes like our interview with Paul Mason, where we talked about what Labour activists should be doing next. If you want to help the podcast and help other people discover the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes or share it on Facebook. My name is Holly Rigby. Thanks for listening and we will see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.